0: Barstool should have bought pen. And I understand the pen was much bigger and all this kind of stuff. But I think that that's the world we're moving to, whereas the media component is not just going to get bolted on. My personal superpower, if there's like one thing that I think I'm really good at, I'm super curious. And, you know, people can write, write, write all they want, but what are people doing? And if there's anybody that's out there doing, they know how hard it is to actually do. One of the reasons that I understood the vision that I had is because I studied perfume. I really wanted to be a perfumer. I studied pastry and um, art, and I knew there were cows nearby.
1: Because See, I'm a comic who became an actor, so I'm cheap. Like, you know, back in the day, like, you could only do one thing. One thing. This is Polymathic by 2PM. Anthony, Pompliano, say your last name. Make sure I have it right. Pompliano, you got it. Beautiful. Uh, welcome to 2PM's Polymathic Audio. You are guest number 10. We try to focus on one guest of a, of an extremely high caliber every month. Um, you made last, a mistake last then. Month. Why, why'd you get me? Oh man, I think that you're great. I mean, I know that we don't always see eye to eye on things, but I, I think that the best conversations that I've had here have been with folks that have presented arguments in a way that I felt were kind and and constructive. Um, I think Derek Thompson of the Atlantic was a great example. We did not agree on anything, but it was a really great episode. So uh, here we are. And uh, I would like for you to tell the audience more about what you do on a day, on a, on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, um, it's pretty simple. We've got an asset management business uh, managed somewhere around $150 million, uh, focused on the digital asset space. Um, I've got two other partners. Um, One of those partners I previously ran a fund with um and uh, that was focused on all early stage venture capital not just uh blockchain or cryptocurrencies or bitcoin uh and then also on top of that i run a uh, a business um that is more of a content uh, type business and uh in there we've got uh a daily email i send out we've got um a daily youtube show uh, and then we've got one of, um, I think is now top 10 or fifteen uh, most popular podcasts in a couple of different categories, business technology, uh, whatever on uh, on various platforms.
1: And uh, on top of all that, you have merch drops every once in a while. Tell me about <laughs> that.
0: Yeah, they I, seem I to do well, the- right? Uh, they do very well, actually, but I would not, uh, I, I would not take those seriously at all. Uh, the very first one we ever did, uh, somebody sent me a logo, which when I looked at it, I thought that, uh, they had used like Microsoft Paint at first. Um, and they were like, dude, you should turn this into a shirt. Like I'd buy one. And so. Somebody helped me figure out how to do some drop shipping, uh, which was just fascinating for me to kind of learn about that process. Uh, and I threw up the link, and we sold out like almost immediately. And I literally was just yeah. laughing. I was like, "Of course!" Um, and so <laughs> I've only really done two or three of them, but uh, but but it's pretty cool to kind of see how you know an individual who has a audience can essentially do this merchandise uh, product with. Out touching the merchandise, right, and kind of how how the payment products and and the drop shipping and all of that comes together.
1: Yeah, uh, in the two PM ecosystem, that is a form of linear commerce. Uh, The theory there is that eventually media and commerce will meet along a line where profitability and long term sustainability are the goals. Um, so I think that you're, I think that you're onto something. I actually wish that you would expand that program. Obviously it's not that much of a priority for you, but, um, again, from the outside, it looks like it does well.
0: Yeah. And and I think part of it also is, um, the ones that we've done have been almost like jokes. And so, uh, I used to think that's why it wasn't worth focusing on, frankly. Uh, but then somebody actually was like, no, that's probably why it does well. Um, it's similar to, um, Elon Musk and the short shorts, like, yeah, he's joking, but also people want to kind of buy the meme. Um, and, and so I think that when they see a shirt that says, you know, long Bitcoin short the bankers, uh, they're buying it just as much uh, to actually wear out in a T-shirt as they are to kind of own the meme, if you will. Uh, and I think that to your point, um, that will continue to, uh, to be a popular way that uh, people with audience or, or content creators uh, monetize.
1: Okay, I like that. Um, so, listen. I don't know if you know much about what 2pm is, so I'm going to break that down for you because I have a feeling um, you know your audience is going to see this and or hear this and have some questions. Um, Let's I know do that it. you've been, yeah, you've been great in in uh, in my opinion, um, but uh, you know a refresher is always useful. So, 2pm is a B2B Media company for the e-commerce industry. Uh, that's the primary industry that we focus on. Though we also touch on media, real estate, brand equity, data science, um, the arts, and the scien- The sciences, excuse me. Uh, it's short for two polymaths, as in this letter is going to polymathic thinkers. Uh, I personally believe that you cannot succeed in the digital ecosystem unless you have a breadth of deep generalism um, skills beyond the ordinary to understand the entire ecosystem as a whole. So when I bring someone like you onto the show, it's because you have experiences that are typically on the fringe of the traditional person that listens to this, but tremendously valuable to the whole. Um, So that's why you're here. I I just think that your opinions, your outlook, your passion, your advocacy for the things that you care about are all very, very valuable things. I appreciate that. Um, So tell me more about where you are right now with regards to your personal life, I know that we have—I wouldn't say a mutual friend, but she is a colleague in Typehouse with me. Uh, the, the the now public Typehouse Telegram group. That, you guys are getting uh,
0: exposed, man. They—they're exposed. I know, the man.
1: <laughs> I know. We're Axios one week, Wall Street Journal the next. You know, it's 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 wild. Uh, what's going on?
0: Uh, well, so Polina, um, who is my now wife, uh, we met, um, I don't know, three or four years ago, uh, have uh, lived together and, uh, and obviously been dating uh, for a while. Uh, we got married uh, three or four weeks ago now, and uh, it is very interesting and valuable to um, live with somebody who uh, thinks about a lot of the same problems that you do right? In terms of um, uh, kind of content and in uh, this new paradigm, if you will, or this new digital world. Um, but, uh, but as most people know, she is a much better writer and much more intelligent than I am. So I basically just try <laughs> to keep up, frankly.
1: <laughs> what's, the, uh, what's the top problem that you feel is worth solving right now? What's going on? Well,
0: there's two different types of problems. I would say that there's obviously, um, kind of impact on the world problems that are um, going to be solved by technologists and entrepreneurs. Uh, this is things like, you know, multiplanetary space and electric vehicles and climate change and kind of all, all of those types of things. Um, so, so I would consider those like the quote unquote real problems. Um, in terms of the problems that I've been spending the most time thinking about uh, is this idea of um, vertical integration. So if you think of most content creators historically, uh, what they've done is they have uh, basically been the mouthpiece or the megaphone uh, for brands. And in exchange for being that megaphone, uh, they get paid advertising revenue. And in kind of one-off situations, um, literally so noteworthy that people will write articles about it. Maybe the creator will um, negotiate some equity ownership in a company or something like that. Uh, but it's usually you know kind of advisory type shared stuff. What I think is happening is a complete one eighty, which is you're going to see vertical integration of a creator who builds an audience and then they go and they continue to create products and services, uh, for that audience. And so it's kind of build the, you know, go find your customers and then build the company, um, wh- which is very different. Uh, but also what it allows somebody to do. Uh, and I like the framing that you have on kind of the, the polymathic, uh, thinker is it allows somebody to have a lot more, uh, kind of range in the types of products and services that they build. So historically people will build, you know, one specific type of company in this ecosystem or this kind of trend that's occurring, uh, they'll be able to build multiple types of products and services that may not even have anything to do with each other other than they just share the same customer. And so I think that's something really interesting that that we're watching play out.
1: Are there any bets that you would make on personal people that are doing that in in, uh, in media right now?
0: Um, well... Obviously, uh, both from a time and capital standpoint, I think, uh, I'm betting on myself, uh, I'm betting on Polina. Um, I've got a brother, uh, Joseph Pompliano, who, uh, we're, we're spending a lot of time with doing the same thing for uh, kind of the money and business behind sports. Um, and I think those three are the ones that I just spend the most time thinking about, frankly, cause you know, that's what we're working on. Um, in terms of other folks, Uh, I actually think most of the big creators uh, are missing this opportunity. So, you know, Joe Rogan, for example, um, a lot of people when he did the Spotify deal said, Oh, Joe, why did you do that? You should have done paid subscriptions instead right? And and I think that's a fair uh, option to weigh in in his um, kind of analysis of of what he should do for his business. But what I didn't hear anyone talking about was uh, somebody with that type of audience going to take Traeger Grills, which is uh, one of his sponsors, and saying, hey, Traeger, I'm no longer going to simply advertise you on the podcast. What we're going to do is I'm going to create a legal entity. We're going to take your grills. We're going to put my logo on them. Uh, We're going to have the Joe Rogan grill powered by Traeger and we're going to promote that on the podcast. And now, when he does that, what he actually is doing is he has equity in a business rather than just cash. And I think that he would make materially more money over the long term doing that. Um, And so, there's those types of people that I would bet on if they started to do this. I just don't see them really doing it yet. Um, and, and so, you know, that's something I'm waiting to see who's some of the early creators that, that do this in a material way.
1: Well, to be fair to Joe, couldn't he still do that despite the Spotify deal?
0: For sure. I, I, absolutely. I, I think the one thing uh, that is unknown right now um, is by licensing your content exclusively to a single platform, um, what is the short-term damage and long-term damage to uh, audience and engagement? And we don't know, right? And, and there may be none. Like It's not necessarily that it has to have damage. But you play out one, I think last year, uh, he did 2.5 billion uh, downloads reviews on the podcast. By going exclusive to Spotify, does that go from two point five billion to three billion? Does it go to one billion? We just don't know yet, and so I think that's one thing to, to pay attention to—kind uh, of the short-term movement in, in audience and engagement. But then also, second is let's say that he plays out a you know three-year contract. I think it is, uh, and he then decides not to renew it. What does he do at that point where um, he's been exclusive to a platform for multiple years? If he then says, hey, I'm going back on YouTube, for example, does he still have that audience there? Are they still engaged? Maybe it's bigger. Maybe it's smaller. We we just don't know. We haven't seen anyone do this yet. Um, And and so, you know, you nor I am Joe Rogan. We don't have all the information to make that decision. And so I look at it less judgmental and much more just... It's a fascinating case study um, that we don't have the the conclusion to or the answer yet. Um, but I think we're going to learn a lot about um, creators and, and kind of how they can monetize an audience uh, relationship and things like that because he's doing this. And so you know, I'm basically
1: acting as a student and trying to learn however this plays out. Got it. Got it. So here's an idea. Here's a thought. Um, it's really funny. I think that more individual creators should look at existing media businesses analytically. And I say analytically because sometimes we don't prefer the media company itself or the way that it's run, but we should be able to look at that company and say, they're doing great things despite my distaste for them. So the first one would probably be Barstool, right? Which I think has done a masterful job of what you're just talking about right now, what you were just talking about. I think an example of this would probably be what they did with um, High Noon, Right? So if you go to any grocery store, you're going to find High Noon Seltzer competing with White Claw and Truly. You're going to see stand-up cutouts of Dave Portnoy. You know, the high, the high Noon business has boomed in the last six months, partially because of Barstool's involvement. You can't even find the cans anywhere in stores at this point. They're selling out that quickly. But underneath it all, they have an equity stake in that in, in that company. I'm surprised that we don't see more individuals doing things like that. So here's the difference:
0: is uh, I think that that is actually the smartest application of the old model. So kind of the if you think of it as a vertical stack, uh, the lowest, uh, easiest application of the old model would just be I'll advertise your product to my audience and you just pay me cash, right? What you're describing is uh, Barstool is on the higher end of the old model, which is they said to High Noon, sure, we'll blow this up in terms of advertising to our audience, but we want cash and stock consideration. What I think I am looking at is um, a tweak on that, which is rather than Barstool be the mouthpiece for a company that already existed, right? Barstool has a a minority stake. Instead, in the future, Barstool will actually create the company, have a majority stake, hire people to run that business for them. And because ultimately distribution is the most important part in a business like that, they can capture much, much better economics than they currently do in the high new deal. So I kind of look at it as like the high noon deal is like a B plus, A minus deal for them. If they did this new thing, which is they created the alcohol brand and owned majority of the business, that would be an A plus deal. That's a big okay. leap, right? So,
1: so businesses yeah, sure. aren't
0: used to doing that. But I think that's where we're going.
1: Yeah. I would say the closest thing that I know personally to this type of deal would probably be uh, you know, the Churnin group invested in Meat Eater. So they bought a majority stake of Meat Eater, which is a meaty company for hunting enthusiasts. And with the with that money, um, Meat Eater acquired a company called First Light, which sold gear for their you know their traditional demographic. And they now own First Light. And I want to say the first sort of promotional deal that they had as the new owner of a company that they were then scaling from, let's call it zero to one. Um, it was like the first day, was like 000, 000 a million dollar day or something. That was the rumor. I don't know if that's true. But that's just incredible that you can buy a company that's relatively small and blow it out of the water like that just because you're throwing gas on the fire. And that gas is the passionate audience behind your media company.
0: Um, yeah, it, it's basically, it goes back to this idea of uh, the content, like the audience that is consuming the content is the customer, right? And I, and I think the, the framework that I use to think through this is just, um, we are going to see uh, the historical example of build a product and then go find product market fit, because you have to find the audience, uh, flipped on its head. And the new paradigm is go find your customer, really get them engaged and really learn about who they are, what they're interested in, and then go build the product. And for a whole host of reasons, that was either one, not a popular strategy or two, was not possible before. I think now it's going to become popular and it is possible. And that's going to, um, the, the people who capture that or are kind of ahead of that curve are going to do very well for themselves over the next, you know, kind of 10 to 15 years.
1: So let's shift gears a little bit. Because we're talking about the business that we tend to take care of on a daily basis. But some of the more interesting things that we discuss are not about our direct our direct influence on our businesses at all. Um, you spend a lot of time talking about the future. One of the most recent conversations that we had revolved around your belief that college education is all but um, antiquated at this point. Um, and that more kids are going to essentially pursue individual educational paths. Um, let's discuss that. Tell tell the audience what you really feel. What you really feel about that?
0: Yeah. So the short answer is I don't know for sure how it's going to play out, but I think that there's three specific um, aspects of a current college education uh, that I've identified where uh, I think that the thesis as to why they existed in the past is going to be broken. And before I get into those three things, what I want to caveat this with is um, there are for sure um, outlier examples. So, lawyers, doctors, right? Those types of people, I don't think that this necessarily applies to what I'll call kind of more professional services that need licensing or, or something. Um, but there's a whole host of careers where I think one, um, the thesis that uh, you needed a college degree and college had a very specific kind of box drawn around it in order to get a job, uh, I think that thesis is going to be invalidated um, in the future. And many may argue it's already been being invalidated today. The second thesis is um, the method of teaching in a college setting of kind of one one to many, right? So one professor teaching many students. Um, I think that we're now realizing that um, that method or, or, or that thesis is being invalidated We've known this in lower um, levels of school with kind of monastery schools and things like that. Um, but I think that that's now going to, to creep up into higher education as well. And then the third thing is um, we're seeing right now in real time the invalidation of uh, you have to be here in person Um to get kind of the education, right? So, so the uh, geographic um, kind of closeness of uh, both the teacher and the individual uh, being essential. And so, what I think is going to move kind of forward is people are still going to learn the same information, but if you go today and you want to take um, an intro to computer science course you can go to Harvard or MIT or your local community college and you can get a certain amount of information but actually if you go on the internet you can find the computer science like 101 course at I think Harvard and MIT online for free right and so what becomes interesting is what education is better you sitting at home and getting your harvard or mit computer science 101 course through your computer or going to the local community college and taking uh computer science 101 now from a pure just uh kind of education right so what information do you learn and what information do you retain i actually think that we're going to see people continue to select uh, some sort of virtual learning from the absolute best right? Um, there is an argument, uh, one that I recognize and, and two, I actually agree with that, uh, a lot of college is not what's taught in the classroom. It's actually what's taught outside of the classroom. And so there's the social components and, and kind of all of those things. I don't know how that gets solved yet, right? I, I, I've talked with people who, um, make the argument that everyone's going to do, uh, th- like the most extreme, um, idea I've heard is, uh, Malls are failing, but malls would be a great thing to go into. You take the department stores, you turn them into the equivalent of a dorm room. Uh, you give students the ability to do virtual learning at um, you know one of the ten best universities in the world, and then you basically use the rest of the malls' real estate to build out kind of an entire campus. So. Think of a college campus today, but rather than it be this big sprawling thing, it's more of an urban type environment um, and everyone there is not going to class physically. Instead, they're learning virtually. I have no clue if that's how it plays out, but I do think those three theses are going to be invalidated for maybe not 100% of students, but a majority of students. um, Because what we're moving from is a world of where did you go and what's on your resume? to a world of can you do the job and what have you actually done before? And as you move into that world, I think that's where you see things like uh, remote work and and kind of all of these trends kind of meeting or intersecting. Um, The big question is, you know, one, is that thought process I just outlaid accurate? And then two, how long does it take for it to go from what is today, you know, a very small percentage of the population to, um, you know, I don't know. 30, 40, 50% of the population, and then over 50%. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but but I do think that the wheels are in motion and kind of those trends are underway. uh, And that's kind of the end result um, that I described.
1: So I'll begin by saying that I agree with most of what you're saying. I think that we're failing to consider one thing. For a few hundred years, college was more than education, it was a credential, like college itself. If you attend a university, you, you are a credentialed member of society. And then in the last 100 years, a lot of that went to the side because in a lot of ways, college education had democratized. You have, you went from almost exclusively tier one schools to tier two, three, four, five even, right? Schools that shouldn't exist but are still charging kids 150000 dollars over their four or five years to get a piece of paper that's relatively worthless. All that's to say, as that as that democratization happened, there are other forms of credentialism that sort of sprouted up in its place to say, not only did I finish college, but I'm also a part of XYZ, right? My concern with what you're saying is that I don't think it will ever be about what you know exclusively or what you've done. There will always be a form of credentialism. It's it's almost without, there's never been a point in American history where we haven't had a system that separated the, dare I say, white collar class, knowledge class from everyone else Um. So when you say that we're going to dismiss college and, and focus on individual learning, what we're opening the door to, in my opinion, is another form of institution that does the same thing.
0: I, I actually don't disagree with that very much, right? I, I think that take Lambda School as an example, and you know, I'm not an investor, not an advisor, just generally a fan of, of a new type of uh, education. Um, if you look at that... I do not think that today a large technology company like an employer looks at a student from Harvard or MIT compared to a student from lambda and puts more weight on the credentials of lambda versus Harvard or MIT there is probably some percentage of colleges though where the credentials of lambda outweigh the credentials of the university I don't know what that sure. is you know five ten percent whatever it ends up being what I think ends up happening is you get this like great separation. So there's, in my opinion, no denying that, I don't know, 10 or 15 of the top universities in in the country will be the last to fall, if you will, right? They've got kind of the strongest brands. They've got the the greatest alumni networks, all all the things going in their um, advantage. But I do think that let's call the bottom, you know, 90 plus percent, or going to eventually that credentialed system is going to be coveted less than the quote unquote new system, whether that's lambdas or, or others. Um, that to me actually is less about like disruption it's more of just like normal market cycles, right? Because if you think back, like before college, there was the trade schools. Right, or or there was the apprenticeships, and like there was always some form of credentialism. To to your point, it's just which one does society put the most weight on, and it feels like the tide is shifting, um, where the credentialism of college is not going to be coveted as much. Again, I don't know how long that takes, um, and I don't think it affects the the top schools, but I do think that if you're a you know a mid major, if you will, type university. Like your days are numbered in terms of holding on to the monopoly that you've had, um, and that my, those business models will come under pressure because of these new systems.
1: Oh, I 100% agree with you there. Did you see the Scott Galloway post on that? I did not. What did he say? Are you? I'm trying to pull it up really quickly. Um, it's fascinating. He studied, I want to say, over 600 brands. The title of the blog was USS University, right? So it's a four-quadrant sort of infograph. The top left is struggle, top right, thrive, bottom right, survive, bottom left, challenged. So you don't want to be in the bottom left. In the bottom left, you're looking at University of Hartford, Pacific University of Oregon, University of Indianapolis, Eckerd College, Maryville University, Sarah Lawrence, Biola University, University of New England, right. Whereas yep. in the top right, to your point, you're looking at Swarthmore, Clemson, Harvard, Georgia, Pomona, Colgate, uh, um, University of Michigan, Northwestern, Hamilton. Um, you know, it's really interesting to see where his research found the value in these in these organizations over the long term. I agree with you. I think that our conversation on Twitter, which could have been perceived as tense, terse, if you will, I think the the genesis of that, like the origin of that feeling for me was I know a lot of people that have college degrees and they have, they absolutely have the ability to move the needle for an organization. But over the last, decades you know that hasn't been enough to that hasn't been enough of a credential to move them over to get them over the hump right and so when i hear people gary vanderchuk does this a lot don't go to college don't go to college sell baseball cards whatever it is you know what i'm saying um it drives me nuts because i know that if i didn't pursue education we wouldn't be having this conversation right now
0: Yeah. But I I think part of it, uh, and and obviously I can't speak for Gary. Um, but I I think part of it also is what are you optimizing for? And and this is, uh, one of these weird things of like, there's no black and white solution here, right. In terms of it's either right or wrong. There's tons and tons of gray and nuance and and all of this. and, And you're highlighting some of it. Um, it's, if you want to, um, work in corporate America, I would say that you've got less than five, probably less than 1% chance to be successful, you know, breaking into it and then also um, kind of accelerating your career without a four-year college degree from, you know, doesn't have to be Harvard or MIT, but it's got to be from uh, a decent university or above, right? If you want to go build businesses, is there an advantage to going to college? You probably meet some people right that end up um, being worth knowing. There's alumni. Um, you get the social benefit, all that kind of stuff. But the things that you're going to learn in the classroom are unlikely to be directly uh, applicable to going and starting a company. And and I don't mean a company just in the sense of uh, you know you got to go start a venture back tech company. I actually mean you know if you want to run um, a uh, a deli, right. If you look at what is the most valuable thing for somebody to go do, I would take the uh, the position that the most valuable thing you could do is go find the best run deli that you could get a job at. And it's more of apprenticeship style learning rather than going to a classroom, right? Some people may disagree with that, but I, I really think that um, people love to debate the go to college, not go to college, right? And, and as you, you mentioned, we saw on Twitter, like everyone's got an opinion. Um, but it, it ultimately comes down to like, what is the individual optimizing for? And the hard part is at 17, 18 years old, when most people make this decision, how do you know, right? Like I'm sure you and I both at 17 or 18 years old uh, thought that we were gonna do things that we ended up not doing uh, and would have never thought we ended, we ended up doing what we were actually doing. So it's just hard to, to make those decisions at that age too.
1: Uh, you know, I'm not going to say you won me over with that, but it was pretty convincing. <laughs> uh, you, you made some great points. Um, I agree with you that I personally look for people that are capable of the job before I look for their personal credentials. Um, I think that we're wired that way. Uh, in, in some ways, our careers have sort of reflected that. Tell me a little bit about your personal journey to getting to where you are today, because I know that you went from U.S. Army to Snapchat, I want to say. Yeah.
0: So for me, um, I uh, played football in college, uh, went to Bucknell University. Um, I was in the Army uh, for a total of, I think, six and a half years. Uh, Did a deployment overseas, uh, left the Army as a a sergeant in the infantry. Um, I built and sold two small technology companies. Uh, right out of school. Uh, and then I went and ran um, a number of product and growth teams at Facebook. Uh, ultimately was hired for a short period of time as the head of growth at Snapchat. Uh, and then I started investing full time in um, 2016. Uh, and we've invested at this point, you know, over a hundred million dollars of the last four years in uh, early stage companies. And so it's uh, it, it it's a, I think, um, Different, but also at the same time, very um, kind of traditional path to uh, to investing full time.
1: Tell me more about you making the leap to investing. Like, what does that look like? What did that process look like for you? To be honest,
0: uh, I didn't have an idea for a company I wanted to go build, Um, and so I was spending a bunch of time with uh, early stage founders who, you know. I'd spent a number of years running um, these you know really growth teams that they were usually in product divisions but but really growth teams and so people wanted to know how do I acquire users and you know even today years later um, I would say that uh, it's probably the number one differentiator um, that there's a lot of people you know tribe capital social capital you'll, you'll hear these guys talk about uh, end of one companies right uh, basically what does this company do that nobody else can do um, and when my partner and I uh, Jason Williams started investing uh, full-time that's all we thought about we said you know what can we do that no other investor can do And I ultimately settled on uh, the number one most valuable thing that you can do for a founder that is measurable is help them get customers. So, you know, there's all kinds of like intellectual Olympics around, you know, we're quote unquote helpful. I like to just say to founders, like, look, here's the number of customers we got you. Right. And, uh, obviously that is a, um, kind of, uh, Coke, uh, I think the term that Mike makes was used is like co-conspirator type relationship where they've got to build the right product. They've got to do everything the right way and then we can help. And so having a large audience online helps, um, and then also understanding how, uh, the social platforms and algorithms and stuff like that helps. Um, and then just having done it over and over and over again, um, is helpful as well. And so I think that, um, you know, now I find myself in this weird spot of, I spent a lot of time investing, but I also uh, am still quote unquote operating. Um, it's just this more like personal media company type structure rather than a, a traditional software company or venture backed company. Um, and so I still get to uh, kind of practice, right. And really understand what works. And so I can literally t- sit down with a founder and say, Hey, I started doing something six weeks ago. Uh, here's how many people have subscribed to the email because of that. Here's what we've seen you know, in terms of growth on XYZ channel. You should start doing the same thing because I, I'm seeing it actually work in real time. Um, and I think founders just appreciate that, right? It, it, it's the view from kind of boots on the ground, um, which is much more helpful than uh, showing up to a board meeting every once in a while and kind of you know pontificating on things that they could try.
1: Is that your motivation your inspiration behind your prolific content creation by any chance
0: no i i think that the um the investing is another uh channel going back to what we talked about the creator like uh and and this will probably surprise a lot of people but like i don't think of myself as an investor right um the investing activity is a way to monetize um, kind of the the personal media company or the, or the creator. So I think that you're going to see an explosion of uh, individuals starting to invest who uh, are kind of pursuing this. You know, hey, I've got a podcast. Hey, I've got a email. I create content, all that kind of stuff, because it, it, it's a very high leverage way to monetize um, your. Audience, your access, your platform, things like that. For me, um, obviously, we're doing it at a level that um, is a little bit different, right? It's not kind of 25, 50 k type angel investments. You know, uh, we, we literally are writing it sometimes leading, you know, hundred million dollar rounds and, and stuff like that. Um, but but I do think that uh, the investing stuff is a, a beneficiary of and, and a byproduct of the content. Um, if we didn't have the content and uh, kind of that personal media company type structure, I actually think that we would be much worse investors. Right. Um, Which is weird to say, but like, that's how I think the world is shifting now.
1: You know, I agree with you there too, uh, which I hate to say, because the goal was to disagree today. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I've had two acquisition offers for 2 PM already. And, In both cases, they sort of wanted me to sunset 2pm to just work for their organization. The reason why I didn't was somewhat along the lines of what you were just saying. Uh, One of the ways that I monetize 2pm is by making investments in the companies that I feel embolden our ecosystem. So it's 18 investments over the last 2 years, which for a bootstrapped company that is investing its own money is not easy, right? Right. Um, yeah, and, and, and the other thing I
0: would say too is like when when I hear that somebody's trying to acquire it, one of the things that uh, I think is shifting, and I would love to hear kind of why you say no, is people are just realizing you will never have more power, right? And I use that word very specifically because power encapsulates in, in control, decision making, upside, you know, a bunch of these things. Other than when you're doing what you're doing right like if anybody was to acquire it it's almost as if that power dissipates to some degree whether it's 10% or 90% uh and it loses the magic of what you built it feels
1: like right oh 100% I, it wasn't even a question for me they they could have <laughs> i mean i'm not going to try to be that guy but they could have put like a 20 million dollar check in front of me and i would have thought about it because that would be nice money that I would have said, no, like that's yeah, the it. Way,
0: the like, way that I think about it is so like you mentioned Barstool sports earlier, right? And, and this is actually um, one of the things. So uh, in 2017, I wrote a blog post, I think, I think it was seven, 16 or 17. I can't remember, but whenever they did the churn in deal. And I basically said at the time, it was companies out at $15 million. And I said, they're going to build a billion dollar business. And people literally were like, "You're an idiot. What are you talking about?" And I outlaid in there. Here's why I think that. Here's kind of the the path I think that they'll take, uh, including things like I think they'll get into more serious content around politics at some point, you know. But they'll do it in their own way. Portnoy just literally interviewed the president, like you know, all these kind of <laughs> things. <laughs> and so I have a story about that, by the way. All right. Well, well what I said is. The whole key is they've got the audience. The audience is the most valuable product in the world to have. And so when they did the deal with Penn, I actually think that that was short-term, smart, long-term foolish. And that's not a knock against Dave or Erica or the folks at Churnin or anything because I don't have all the information. But the one structural thing that um, I w- was left kind of scratching my head on was if you have the audience, you now are focused on that audience serving the needs of Penn National versus Barstool should have bought Penn. And I understand the Pen was much bigger and all this kind of stuff. But I think that that's the world we're moving to, whereas the media component is not just going to get bolted on, right? If you look at Robinhood and Market Snacks, Robinhood acquired Market Snacks and now Market Snacks is just kind of bolted onto Robinhood. I think what you're going to see is you're going to see the media organization end up being the parent company and they're going to either go start or acquire these businesses. And what they're going to do is they're going to repeat, like, like rinse and repeat the process over and over and over again. And that's how they're going to accrue so much value. And so for you, it's like you're making investments today, but what stops you in the future from one day just buying one of the companies or starting your own? Right underneath, kind of the parent company, like that, to me is where all the value is going to accrue.
1: You know, I think one of the standout quotes from this conversation will be that Barstool should have purchased Penn instead of the other way around. <laughs> they should have. Like, like it, it's pretty clear. I don't know. Do you disagree with that? No, listen, I listen. Barstool is not my cup of tea. I always judge businesses on whether or not I would actually work for them. I don't okay. think I would survive. I don't think I would survive three months working for Barstool just because I'm very outspoken. If I think something, and I know yeah, that my lot, mouth, and is a lot of people like there. that over there, everyone's outspoken. I feel like that works there. Sure, some some of it's appreciated, some of it isn't. Let's just say that. Um, that being said, I think that they are a brilliant business. Brilliant. Um, and to your point, I think that they are often underrated. I, I look at the passion of their audience and I'm, I'm often in awe of how they can move their audience from one topic to the other, you know, from sports to day trading to podcast drama between two hosts back to day trading and now to sports. It's just, it's not ordinary at all. Um, and I I definitely think the only way that I see PIN really growing because of Barstool in the current structure is if they're using Barstool's name to license retail real estate on their behalf. Um, I think that to your point, Barstool probably could have done a better job of monetizing PIN in new ways than the other way around. But again, I don't have all the information and I don't talk to the churning guys that often.
0: Yeah, and, and I think the the other piece of this that's really interesting is um uh, I, I can't remember if it was Dave or Erica. Uh I want to say they were on maybe Jim Kramer on CNBC or something, but they basically were talking about uh they built DraftKings business. And you know, they were half joking, but their whole point was like, look, we were the distribution. And we drove everyone there to use that product. And now that business is worth you know $13 billion, right? Uh, and then what they did is they went and they got in bed with what is now going to end up being a competitor to DraftKings. Um, and they're going to do the same thing. But what I think is missed, and, and some of it is just like, this is the harder path, but it is the more valuable path, is why not just create a DraftKings competitor And then simply drive that audience instead of driving to DraftKings, drive them to Barstool, right? Well, and you got to build a product. You got to do all the hard things, but like long term, that's actually the best move for a business like that.
1: Yeah, I, my honest to goodness answer is probably that there was an investment horizon that Churnin wanted to stick to. Um, The company was under slight distress at the time um and shernan wanted wanted their money they wanted their money
0: could could definitely um, be possible absolutely yeah
1: i mean i i don't i i i don't understand the move beyond that set of constraints um and then obviously with what dave did a few weeks ago with the president uh that's going to present some new conflicts and i haven't been following it so i don't know if it's been resolved already uh but i remember tweeting about uh big cat and what he said about being unaware of, of the of the interview with the president. Um, and long story short, uh, one of the folks from Chernin reached out via email and said, hey, just so you know, we didn't know either. <laughs> and I was like, that's insane. Uh, number one, Big Cat assumed that Chernin knew. And apparently, co- according to this particular contact, who's very high up in the company... They did not know, um, so I don't know what the strategy is going to look like at Barstool moving forward. Do you have any insight there?
0: I I, I have no uh, inside information. Um, I'm talking to Caleb Presley tomorrow. I'll ask him, <laughs> but I'm assuming he doesn't know either. Uh, but but I think that uh, you know a lot of this too is um, the DNA of the entrepreneurs who started companies. 15, 20 years ago uh, is different. And that's not a, a, a negative thing. It's, I actually don't think that most of the people I see starting content businesses today could have built Barstool, right? It, it was a different era. It was a different type of skill set needed. Um, it was a different way of communicating and, and creating content and all that kind of stuff. Vice versa, the, Team that Barstool has, they've actually done a pretty good job continuing to reinvent themselves. Like, I don't know what three years ago, they had no podcast. Now, the podcasts make up like a material part of their revenue, right? In terms of podcast advertising. So, like, they've done a good job of of staying ahead of that. I think the difference in valuation from a strategy standpoint is you will be worth hundreds of millions or maybe a billion dollars if you're a media company that monetizes via advertising if you are a company that has an audience and creates products and services under your own brand and you own majority of that if not 100% you can build a multi-billion dollar business and so it goes back to you know Joe Rogan who made 30 million dollars in podcast ad revenue last year if he did that Traeger deal I told you about, I would think that he could sell, call it $5 million worth of grills. And if he sold $5 million worth of grills, I would assume that the equity of the business would be worth $50 million or more, right? And so just that alone off of one advertising slot, he could have made more on an equity type deal. And I think that you're going to start seeing this, And, And you're already starting with, you see people doing merch drops, or you know, if you go to kind of the most extreme example, Kylie uh, Jenner, Kim Kardashian, Kanye West, the three of them are either billionaires or close to it because of this strategy. And so, I think you're going to see that seep down into people who are much less known, but still have an audience, and
1: they're going to do the exact same thing. Which platforms? And I know that we're wrapping this up. Which platforms do you feel represent that shift? most prolifically right now? So I actually don't think it's a platform specific
0: thing. And and what I mean by that is what's very interesting to me right now is take TikTok um, compared to Substack. When most people look at those, they say those two things couldn't be different, right? My guess is that the, well, definitely the creators are different on each one, but the audience is different as well. And so if you said to me, Ben Thompson is going to create a software product that helps his audience and a TikTok star is going to create a physical product that's wanted by their audience, it may actually be a pretty close um, race in terms of who monetizes better and my assumption is and again the assumption may be flawed but Ben's audience has a much higher disposable income and he's got a big enough audience even though he doesn't have you know 2 5 10 15 million people he still has a big enough audience that has enough trust with them where he could get very high conversion at a high price point the tiktok stars are more likely to be low price point high volume type conversion and so To me, it's like, it doesn't matter about the platform as much as it's the mentality shift of the creators, where if you are a creator, you have to think of yourself as an entrepreneur. It's not just, oh, I create content. If you want to actually monetize what you're doing in a material way, you have to understand and think about what are the businesses, products, and services that I can create that my fans or audience want. Because if I do that and I own a majority uh, percentage, I will actually make more money doing that than I will from anything else I do. And so it's just platform you know, agnostic in my opinion.
1: So ironically, I feel like Substack is really booming right now. You've had tremendous success on Substack. Um, you clearly think entrepreneurially. So this isn't a statement about you. But don't you see there being a problem that on Substack, they make it so easy for you to not think about the nuts and bolts of business that it could potentially handicap, I guess, uh, the next generation of those types of creators?
0: I think that anyone who uses the current Substack business uh, or model as 100% of what they're doing is not the type of person who's going to do what I'm talking about. And what I mean by that is inherently, if you are only on Substack, you have no social media, you have no other platforms, no anything, you're not a entrepreneur, you're a writer. And I think that part of what Substack has been very successful in doing is helping people who are actually writers monetize and build a business by peeling away all the things that are required to do the business and allow you just to focus on writing, right? Now, two ramifications of that. One, uh, I know the Substack guys really well. I was one of the early people on, on the platform. Um, I think that they have aspirations beyond just writing. Uh, obviously, they've got an audio feature. I think that it wouldn't be a stretch to, to see them create a video feature at some point, etc. And so it goes back to like, I want to subscribe to this person. And I want to subscribe to whatever they write, whatever they you know talk about, and whatever they record on video. We'll see if that ends up happening or if it just stays email only. But the second thing is the people who are entrepreneurial and, and thinking the way that I'm describing, they see Substack as one tool in their toolbox of things, right? So if you look at, for me, I've got Substack, I've got audio platforms on, on the podcast, I've got YouTube I've got social media, like I have all these different platforms. And frankly, Substack has at this point um, the smallest audience, even though it is one of the, you know, I don't know, top 15 most successful Substacks. But the difference is I monetize all of the other platforms through advertising and I monetize Substack through reader supported subscription. And so it's understanding that there's different types of platforms with different monetization methods, uh, but it's all designed holistically, right? So similar to you, like you've got a podcast and you've also got the written content. And so if you're you're not, or if you end up just being a uh, one faceted creator where you're just on one platform, one content type, I don't think that you can actually claim to be entrepreneurial as much as it is you. You know, you're just a writer, and if you're if you want to be a writer, like that's actually not bad at all. It, more, you know, more power to you. It's just we're talking about two different things then, right? We're talking about being a writer versus being a a, a business creator. And I think the business creator is the much more profitable path, but it also takes more work and and, and more planning and things.
1: Yeah, I, I yeah, I don't know how familiar you are with my business model, but um, I would say that probably 30 to 40 percent of Two P.M.'s revenue. Comes by way of um, consulting companies, so <laughs> makes a you know, ton of sense. Yeah, I mean, we the in some ways the content itself is top of funnel because they see the ideas, they're drawn to the ideas, and then the question inevitably becomes, "Can you help implement these ideas within our organization?" I typically say no, but for a select few, I say yes. You know, I've we've built for Verizon Media, we've worked with Big Commerce, we've worked we've worked with ShipBob. You know, we've Uh, worked with Alibaba, just, you know, the list is at 15 or 20 at this point. Um, It's been amazing. What that does for me is it helps me to maintain some operational experience. So when I do write, much like you, I'm writing from a position of expertise and not observation. Um, So hopefully that continues to work for for the ecosystem of 2PM. Um, I will say that, man, this has been a joy. I know that we've run over a little bit, and I don't want to keep. It. I know that you're a busy man, but uh, I think the audience is really going to appreciate this. Are, is there anything else that, that we're missing before we go?
0: No, man. Listen, you're you're ahead of your time. You, you get this stuff better than uh, most. You probably get it better than even I do. And uh, just keep it up. I, I think what you're building is uh, is incredibly valuable. And the only thing I'll say is don't sell it. Bye bye bye. Just don't sell it, man. <laughs>
1: Thanks, Pop, man. I appreciate it. And uh, I will hopefully talk to you soon.